And James was writing to new believers, to baby Christians, so that they will not judge by appearances, like they did here in the church, on the basis that they give some preferential treatment to some and, unfortunately, it's at the expense of others. If you looked the part, they assigned value to you and worth, and they treated you differently. But if you didn't look the part, you were left to sit at my feet. But here's the thing. I found um, that favoritism is a rough deal. If you've ever been uh, on the receiving end of favoritism, uh, you will see that it's also not very fun. <laughs> how many of you would say, Mark, this is, a, this is kind of a, a, a metaphor for how it was with me and some of my uh, siblings growing up. I'm not sure if you're the one getting fed or the one uh, getting trounced in this picture, but favoritism is rough. And so um, it's an interesting thing. Uh, some of you may or may not know this, uh, but the New Testament wasn't written originally in English. It was written in Greek. And so sometimes the, the words and phrases mean something a little bit differently. The, the Greek word for favoritism is found in James. literally means to receive the face. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because that's exactly what we do, particularly if you uh, walk into a room you will, uh, you know, with our eyes, we will go and we will judge people. We see what they're wearing and so forth. And we decide whether they are worthy of our attention, whether we will assign them value or not. So we choose to either receive their face and say, yeah, that person, you know, I might give them the time of day. Or if we don't like what we see, we reject their face and all that goes with it. As you saw up here in, in the skit, these guys, the others, they have stories behind them. They come up and they tell their stories, but oftentimes we choose to not see the story behind the face. They just become those others. So, um, and this happens all of the, all of the time. Uh, when we, particularly if you walk into a room, we almost can't help it. It's kind of our human default. That uh, when we meet someone for the first time, we look at their clothes, their level of attractiveness or lack thereof. You know, by our standards, their athletic build, their age, their race, their ethnicity, their level of difference or similarity to our own. And so what we are constantly doing, we are constantly receiving others or we are rejecting them based on very superficial uh, standards. Isn't that right? And so James says, hey, listen, you have become judges with evil thoughts because you are signing, you are reducing the value and worth of somebody God created in his image and you'll take one look at them and you'll decide they're not worth it. They are not worth it. I'll give you a true story here. Not two weeks ago, I was on my way to church here on a weekday. And my car had two, uh, not flat tires, but they were low. So I was running late. Um, I pulled into this, uh, this 7-Eleven that had one of those air pumps, right? And so I'm going there. I pull up. I'm waiting for some guy to get done with it. So as I'm waiting, I notice, and there is a dude that's sitting right in front of the 7-Eleven. He's leaning against the building. And I took one look at him, and I was not in the mood. I did not want to see this dude's face. He was an old and tattered man wearing old and tattered clothing, uh, you know, hauling an old and tattered duffel bag, uh, riding an old and tattered bicycle. So I could tell he's, that cat wanted to make eye contact with me, and I did not want to make eye contact with him. And so, sure enough, he calls and gets my attention. He's like, hey, bro, you going to get some air? I was like, uh, yep, just ready to get some air in my tires. He's like, man, I'll be over in a second. And I was like, oh, great. So this guy, he wants to mooch air off of me for his horrible bike. And inevitably, he's going to come and he's going to ask for money. So I'm thinking, you know, what do I tell him? You know, I'm not the stingiest guy in the world. 
where's my wife looking at me? So, and, but I, you know, it was just one of those moods. And you guys ever feel not compassionate? So anyhow, the guy comes over, he's like, hey man, he's like, I thought since we, since we both needed air that we could get it at the same time. I was like, all right, that's great. And then he did this. He reaches in his pocket and he goes, it's on me today. He pulls out five quarter, puts them all in and hands me, he hands me the hose and says, you first. And I grabbed it from him, put the air in my tires and I gave it back to him. And he goes, brother, he goes, God bless you. Have a great day. So I got in my car, I got in my car and I just had tears run down my face. I'm like, Jesus, I am so sorry. I thought I pegged this guy. He's a taker. Turns out he was a giver. I just took one look at him and I thought I had him all figured out. And that was a great lesson. And um, you know what? And I was already working on this message. Jesus was like, hmm, I'll show you a lesson. <laughs> so as we'll see this morning, favoritism, it's one of the most insidious sins in the Christian life. Um, not, it's, it's a brutal enemy love, not just because of the damage it does. Well, I should say especially because of the damage it does to those that already feel poor, unlovable, unworthy, the, the kind that Jesus calls the least of these, the forgotten ones in Matthew 25. And not because they are in fact the least important, but because we have made them feel that way. Um, let's just look at one quick story this morning that we're going to, um, that, uh, yes, the least of these, of course. The flip side of favoritism. Um, I'm going to paraphrase or just kind of summarize, I should say, 2 Samuel 9. Because this is a great story of the outrageous example of King David. If you do have your Bibles, you can feel free to look at that. Um, it's always good to have your Bible with you. Uh, you don't always have to read it from the screen. You can look at it in there. Um, but that is uh, 2 Samuel uh, 9, verses 1 through 12. So here's the deal. Here's uh, the summary of the story. Here's a picture of David and Jonathan. A lot of you know the story about them. Uh, if you don't, here's the quick uh, 411. King David was not the first king of Israel, was he? King Saul was. King Saul lost his position, rightfully so, and rebelled against King David, tried to kill him, and uh, it was a big mess. They became mortal enemies. But Saul, ironically, had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan, uh, the son of David's mortal enemy, became David's best friend. If that weren't true in real life, somebody would have made a movie about that by now because it's, it's a great setup. And so what we have here in 2 Samuel 9 just two chapters before, David said, God, what can I do for you? I have a great idea. I'm going to build you a temple. And God's like, whoa, cool your jets. That's going to be for your son to do. And so he backs him off that. So two chapters later, we pick the story up. And David says, what can I do for others? And namely, he asks two questions. The first question he asks is this. How can I show kindness for the sake of my best friend? And he's talking about his dearly uh, departed friend Jonathan, because Jonathan and Saul were both killed in battle uh, on the same day. So they're, they're both out of the picture. So even uh, in the wake of Jonathan's death, David is asking, is there still no one alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Back in 1 Samuel 20, you find that David cut a covenant of kindness with Jonathan and said, listen, even though your dad hates me and wants to kill me, Listen, for you, dude, I will do anything. I will go to the ends of the earth. Forever I will be kind to you and to the members of your family, right? And so he's being true to that. So he's trying to find 
Who's left from the house of Saul? Because once the house of Saul fell, man, they scattered like rats. And for good reason, because kings had a habit of annihilating everybody that was left in any kind of lineage of a coup d'etat, you know. You don't want any, uh, you don't want any um, lost grandson or uh, rogue nephew uh, to come back and have a little vengeance, a little chip on his shoulder, you know. And so you've got to annihilate them all. And so... He finds a, a, sur, a surviving servant of Saul named Ziba, unfortunate name. And Ziba says, listen, there is, there is a, I know of one descendant of Saul, if you would care to uh, make contact with him. His name is Mephibosheth, an even more unfortunate name. And so turns out Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson or Jonathan's son. So David is thrilled and elated at this. So the deal is you have to know a little bit about Mephibosheth. All right, here's the deal. It appears that Mephibosheth is completely unaware that David had a covenant of kindness with his dead father. Or if he knew about it, he wasn't convinced that David was going to be true to his word. It's very clear in Scripture here that Mephibosheth is in hiding. He's staying off the grid. He's staying below the radar. He does not want to be found. Certainly not, not the least by King David. So Mephibosheth, the other interesting thing here is that he was lame in both feet, all right? In 2 Samuel 4, we learn that whenever news broke that Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, you know, it is time to get out of Dodge there because now the king is on a tirade. He's going to annihilate everybody in the line. So what happened, we get some fragments of the story where a nurse picked up Mephibosheth, who was just a young child at the time, and the frantic scurry to get out. There was an accident. She fell on him, perhaps. Um, and something happened, obviously, with his spinal cord. And so he became lame in both legs, paralyzed from the waist down. Which, you know, as you grow older, it's uh, unfortunate in the ancient Near East because there weren't a lot of desk jobs. And so he wasn't really working from home, so he felt useless. There wasn't much he could contribute uh, to the kingdom of Israel. And so Mephibosheth, again, he's left hiding in fear. He feels he's useless. Um, he's in some level of poverty. Again, he's renting. Um, the Bible says he stayed in the house of a guy named Makir. So he doesn't even own his own house. He's just kind of laying low. And then one day, he gets a knock at the door. And he finds out that the king wants to see him. You can imagine the, the confusion and the fear that probably grips him. He invites, uh, he's invited to uh, King David's palace. So Mephibosheth shows up. And what is his default reaction after all he's been through in life? This is his opening line. He says, King David, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? See, dogs, they were, they were kind of a sign of contempt anyhow, not like they are today. So in a dead dog, you can't, you can't paint a lower picture of how this guy felt. Can you say, uh, who here can say self-esteem issues? All right? So you can just imagine how he felt. And I'll tell you what, here too, I'm giving you a little preview because I think over the next few months, you guys are going to get a chance to hear uh, from somebody that uh, has empathized with someone like Mephibosheth. If any of you have not had the privilege of uh, meeting Eli Pennick, who has spent uh, all of his life in a wheelchair, he has, he has felt forgotten and oftentimes like a dead dog, as he's told me. But uh, if you get a chance to know him, you'll see, again, there's always a story, you know, behind the wheelchair. And uh, hopefully we get a chance to share that with you down the road. So how did David, how did he respond? What did he do uh, to Mephibosheth, who felt so worthless like a dead dog? 
Well, as he comes before him, he was surprised to find out that, first of all, the king removes all of his fear and says, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. My kindness thing, that's for real. I'm not out for vengeance. Two, that he would now rightfully claim the inheritance left by King Saul. It was just kind of in a holding tank. Maybe it was an escrow. I'm not sure. But all of a sudden, it was released to him since he's a, he's a surviving relative of King Saul. Things are looking up for Mephibosheth. Don't you thinking, okay, maybe my name isn't the worst thing about my life now. Ziba, the servant that told David about Mephibosheth to begin with, he had 15 sons and 20 servants. Now David takes those 15 sons and 20 servants and Mephibosheth, now they are yours. Command them as you will. And finally, save the best for last, he said, from now on, Mephibosheth, the one that feels like a dead dog, from now on, you will rise up and you will eat at the table of the king and I will treat you as one of my very own sons. It's an amazing story. I mean, if you had to summarize it in one statement, you could say uh, he's being, being a dead dog to living high on the hog. And that happened just like that. You know what? I think David probably remembered. Don't you? This is just speculation. But I think David at one time, he felt that he was passed over, that he was judged for his appearance, for his youth, for just having a low-level occupation, hanging out with the sheep, right, uh, as, a, as a shepherd. And so remember whenever... Uh, Samuel came to anoint the new king. He brought all of his tall, good-looking older brothers. And Samuel, the verse is up there on the screen after the skit. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I think David remembered that whenever he's looking at Mephibosheth laying on the floor in front of him. So here's the deal. King David sought him out and invited him to his table. Do you guys see the glorious picture of the gospel in this story? First of all, we have a king that makes a covenant to value kindness over judgment. Secondly, we have a king who seeks out an enemy not to destroy, but to restore. Third, we have a king who sees value in someone that can't even see value in himself. And fourth, we see a king who seeks out an outsider and invites him to his table and treats him as one of his very own. This is what Jesus did for us. This is a picture of the gospel. Whenever you read these Old Testament stories like this, man, they're all pointing to Christ and what he has done for us. And like the ultimate anti-favoritism verse, Romans 5, 8, while we are still sinners, while we are still enemies, while we are still outsiders, while we are still dead dogs, Christ died for us. I tell you, what, when you're a dead dog, you can't go seeking out an owner. A dead dog just lays there, and that's what he does. He, he, he's dead. And you need someone to come seek you out, breathe life into you, and, and, and invite you to the table of life. Uh, it's exactly what he did. Well, I'll tell you what, that's why favoritism, guys, that's why it stinks so bad. Because you know what it does? It spits in the face of the gospel. Every time we show favoritism and fail to show love, it's like we are rebuilding the walls of division that Christ came to annihilate between Jew and Gentile. We, the humans spend so much time building walls between. Christ cuts them down every time we show favoritism. It's our attempt to rebuild that wall. That's why I think that the, the sin of favoritism is so insidious. Just spits right in the face of the gospel. All right, well, since we mentioned the gospel, let's bring this, let's bring this all home. And let's talk about Jesus' take on favoritism. All right. I, uh, I gave a similar talk to students at uh, Seneca Valley High School, um, which is up outside of Pittsburgh a number of years ago. And I asked him this. I said, what if Jesus came and walked into your lunchroom? What if he came, for those who were uh, youth group students as well, what if he came into your youth group and he was going to have a conversation? Where would he go first? 
Where would he go first? He sees the cool kids here. There's all the jocks. Over there, there's all the artsy kids, you know, uh, coloring on the tables, dancing on the tables, whatever they do. I wasn't one of them. I'm betting that Jesus goes initially and finds those who are sitting by themselves, those that have been rejected by everyone else, people that do not have their face received by anyone else. I bet he makes a beeline just for them. How many think or how many think that I would be safe in that assumption? Jesus, when he was here, you could see he, um, there's plenty of evidence that he gravitated toward the outcasts of society, the ones that were forgotten, those who were on the island of misfit toys, okay? Um, those that were surrounded by people that wouldn't receive the face, the tax collectors, the lepers, the prostitutes, the lame, the Samaritans. And if Jesus were here today, I bet he would even reach out to fans of the Baltimore Ravens. I'm, I'm guessing. I am guessing that he would do that. If Kurt Bailey's here, buddy. So here's the thing. Jesus is the great equalizer. He, he knows how to come into a room. He knows how to humble the proud. He knows how to lift up the downtrodden. Um, how many of you know someone that you think that they think that they have the spiritual gift of humbling people? Now, sometimes God will use us in that, but I tell you, that is not a spiritual gift, all right? And certainly, if God used you, that should not be what you get up to live and breathe for. The Bible talks about showing special honor. As it says in, uh, 1, Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians 12 there, it says those parts, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. So here's a visual here because uh, we can go and do likewise. Jesus comes into a room and see these people that think they're all this and a bag of chips. And then the people that feel like dead dogs, they feel like Mephibosheth. Jesus comes in. Then he takes the, those who are lowly and lifts them up. So when he's done clearing the room, everybody's on the same level playing field. So someone asked me, Mark, they said, Mark, if you show special honor, isn't that showing favoritism? Like, no, you don't understand what favoritism is. Remember, that's special treatment for shallow reasons. Showing special honor is, is doing what Jesus would do and restoring somebody, giving them the value, the honor, the dignity, and the love that they deserve. And that's the ministry that Jesus calls us to. Um, all right, I'm gonna, let me close with this story because it's, um, it's a great one, and it's true. When I got my, when I got my uh, start in uh, youth ministry years ago um, with Metro Pittsburgh Youth for Christ, it's, a, it's an outreach ministry to public school and unchurched students, and every year we would take hundreds of students to Ocean City, New Jersey. Anyone ever been there? Yeah, the boardwalk, great boardwalk. So we would take hundreds of kids there, and so just like a lot of youth groups, right, a lot of the, a lot of the Christian students there, they kind of were content to go with other, other Christian friends because it's easy just to go with the other Christian friends. Am I right? Even when you're adults, it's still easy just to hang out with your own. There was one kid uh, named Mark Undercoffler. He was a junior at Peters Township High School. And Mark was on an assignment. The Holy Spirit, weeks before Ocean City, um, put on his grid a guy named Mike. In the, in, the, in the school. Mike was invisible. Mike was arguably the most socially and relationally awkward dude you would ever meet. Everything about him was bent in. He was not athletic in any way. He wasn't very attractive looking. Mike was a ghost in this school. The only time people would acknowledge him is when they had to or to make fun of him. And so Mark does a crazy thing because Mark is fairly popular, right? Mark gets to know 
this guy Mike. People are like, what in the world is going on here? He invites Mike to Ocean City with a couple hundred others of us. So um, I meet Mike. We all ready to go and get on this bus and go away for a week. So Mike gets permission to go. And uh, I tell you what, the, the heads were turning like, what is this kid doing here? Some of the kids that even went to school with him didn't even recognize him because they just ignored him. He's a ghost, right? So Mark was so good. Mark went around and made sure that he introduced everybody on both buses to Mike, included him in the conversation, didn't leave his side. In fact, when we all got to the beach, we said, hey, let's go in the ocean. Mike had never been to the ocean ever. So we all go in there. You know, I get in there a few minutes later. I'm joining them. We're, throwing, we're you know, playing in the waves and stuff. And Mike says to me, Mark, because I was one of the few guys he would talk to at first. He says, Mark, um, I'm getting kind of tired and cold. Can we go out and get something to eat? I was like, sure. So I'm talking to him like, hey, Mike, it's so good to have you here. You have your socks on. <laughs> He's wore socks in the ocean. They're full of sand. He didn't care. This is the kind of dude we're talking about. So um, to make a long story short, over the week, people began to take note of what Mark was doing, and they began to go and do likewise. They decided they would do the unthinkable and give Mike a chance, maybe even get to know him, find out the story behind the face. He was no longer one of those others. I am telling you what, you would see the, the worship times, you know, because we were there to, you know, introduce kids to Christ. The first day he was there, he was just the shame and the self-consciousness was all over him. By the end of the week, you saw him standing there like this with a bunch of friends. By the end of the week, people were like, yo, Mike, M-Dog. And you find out this guy, he was really funny, but no one would ever have known. And also, I'll tell you what, a metaphor was this. He was like this, he was like a dead plant. And by, as the week went on, you just saw this guy open up and blossom. He, I mean, people were including him, like asking him, seeking him out. Hey, you want to go to eat with us? It was crazy. I could not, I never had seen anything like that. And I'll tell you what, this is part I will never forget. I get home. We get back to Pittsburgh, right? We're, un, uh, we're unpacking all of the, the, the buses and so forth. And so um, I'm taking the you know, taking some of the suitcase luggage out, and I look, and then there's Mike's mom standing in front of me with tears in her eyes. So if any of you guys are familiar with student ministry, you never want to see a parent <laughs> with tears in their eyes. It's usually bad things. Am I right, Steve? And um, she looks at me, and she says, Mark, I remember, I remember the boy that I put on this bus a week ago. The boy that got off this bus right now, I don't know who he is. Who, whatever you did to him this week, so she said, whatever you did to him this week, she said, thank you. It's like, he's, he, has, he has life in his eyes that I have never seen. She gave me this big hug. And here at, at, at the student ministries here, we want to foster that kind of environment because oftentimes, guys, belonging comes before believing. People want to know, especially in this culture, Will you accept me even if I haven't yet accepted your Jesus? And so he gets accepted and he comes to faith uh, a few months later, but it would have never happened if, if he wouldn't have first felt the love and come to life just because people respected him and decided to receive his face and all that was about him. Praise God. All right, well, let's, um, let's end like this. As we go forward, guys, our challenge, we, we know we have to love everyone, but the specific challenge today on the table is to find where are the least of these in your lives? Where are the, where are the, Mar, where are the mics uh, in your life? Where are the Mephibosheths, the ones that you need to show special honor to? To seek them out and invite them to the table of your life.
to seek them out. Guess what? They probably won't come looking for you. You have to go seek them out. Get, say, Jesus, put them on my radar. And then invite them into the table of your life. Even though you may not feel like receiving their face, even though it may get a little messy, even though it may cost some time, some effort, some convenience, some money, maybe even reputation with others. Those kids at Seneca Valley High School, the, there's a bunch of popular Christian kids there. They actually took me up on this challenge. And they went ahead, and when they went back to school, they began to reach out to all kind of forgotten Mike's and Mephibosheth. And man, they turned more heads than any, if they would have had six Bible studies a day. They turned head because they loved those that felt unlovable. And as we move ahead in this vision, remember Steve talking last week about uh, outreach and service? I'm telling you what, we cannot move forward motivated by mere pity. You guys understand the, the difference there? Pity is just feeling sorry for someone because they think we have less value and we feel better about ourselves because we thought about them. Man, pity is a spectator sport that requires very little love, very little sacrifice, and very little personal involvement. But I tell you what, compassion is a whole different story because we are about passion for God and compassion for people. And compassion begins with that conviction that we are all God's equally loved, equally valued children. And because we esteem them as more important than ourselves, we are dying to jump into their lives and give them the help that they deserve. So let's do more than just not show favoritism. That's where you have to start. But let's, let's go on the offensive and love boldly, courageously, and compassionately. And the love of God will compel us to do just that. All right? And so um, just envision your life as a table. All right? And you have a set of binoculars right here. This is your assignment, should you choose to accept it. You grab those binoculars and say, Lord, put those people on my right hand. Some of you already know, uh, some of you already know that you have a guy from 7-Eleven that's trying to get your attention and you're trying to look, look their way. Say, Lord, give me the love and the courage, the compassion to get in their lives, even though it might be a little messy. Amen. Amen. Well, I thought it would be an appropriate way to close the service to hear the word of God as it's um, spoken through a few of our students. So here are some telling scriptures in here that would inspire us as we move forward uh, in this, in this uh, mission to not just not show favoritism, but to show compassion. Harrison, you want to roll that video? It's just a short one. Some of our very own students. So let's listen up. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom has not seen. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So, 
I say, I, I say this in closing as the uh, youth pastor of this church is that um, if you are a 7th to 12th grader, if you have parents of 7th to 12th graders and you haven't uh, experienced Crossfire, you know, we're in a season of change and transition, but this is the kind of culture we want to foster. So I welcome you. Come on out. We're starting again on September 13th on Sunday nights. Um, you can just go to that uh, webpage right there and find out all the info that you want. Um, we would love to have you. If you're a parent here too, uh, we're even having a meeting right after the service uh, from 12 to 1. If you just want to find out, it's kind of like a Crossfire 101. And so if you just want to come uh, meet some of the parents and find out what we do, how we operate, I would love to have you there. And let me just say this. If, there anyone, if there's anyone here that is, like, feels called to invest in the lives of young people, middle schoolers or high schoolers, you know, we are always looking for volunteers. I'm not looking for warm bodies. We don't need warm bodies. But we want those that are ready to roll up their sleeves and love kids and invest in them. So if that's something that you feel called to do, you can uh, find me easily on the website, and I would love to chat with you about that. Amen. All right. Well, if you would stand to your feet, let's close in prayer, and I'll give you a benediction. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sought us out, and you have invited us to your table. We thank you this is the gospel. And would you just give us that courage and that love because we can't muster it on of ourselves. Lord, that love with that, that you loved us with, Lord, let that love go spilling out, particularly finding those ones that feel like that they are unlovable, the ones that feel like they are forgotten, the ones that feel like they are dead dogs, the ones that feel like Mike or Mephibosheth. Lord, help us to go and show them special honor to raise them up and, 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 and be the Jesus that they might have never have met. God, you're awesome. We thank you for the privilege of being uh, participants in this vision where we can not just show passion for you, but compassion for others and help us to do that well and wisely. Lord God, in, in, in such power that only you can take the glory for it. God, we love you and we thank you. Go with them today, Lord, and help us to set our tables and have our binoculars handy. In Jesus' name. Now to him who has sought us out and invited us to his table, may we... Go, and for his glory, go and do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, y'all.